Let me open us with a word of prayer and then we'll divide up into our groups. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the family that you've given us here at Lakeside. Such an encouragement, week after week after week, to be able to come here and find a place with like-minded brothers and sisters where we can worship you and where we can learn from your word. Pray today, Lord, for each one of us that our hearts would be attentive, not just in Sunday school, but also in the service this morning and the service tonight. Pray that you would help us to be encouraged and convicted and strengthened and challenged. And I pray, Lord, that from the various teachings that we get today, you will work in our hearts to conform us to the image of Christ. Lord, we pray for the new ladies' ministry that's starting. I pray that this women's ministry activity will will be a blessing to the ladies of our church. I also pray for Awana, that you will provide the workers needed to minister to the children you're going to bring into our sphere of influence. And I pray, Lord, for all the leaders that are returning, that you give them strength and grace to be able to approach these children as you approach them with hearts of compassion. Lord, we love you. We ask that you would be honored by everything we do today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we are back this morning in our verse-by-verse study of First Peter. It's been almost three months since I taught, so I'm going to give a little bit of a longer introduction, so to speak, just to get us back on the same page. I've been teaching in First Peter. It's been almost, uh, I think it's been a year since I started the book, and the verses where we actually are going to be studying today are First Peter chapter 2, and we're going to primarily camp out in verse 11. I'm covering verses 11 and 12 together, but it's going to take me two weeks to do so. And I want to remind you of sort of the background of First Peter and what we've covered so far, because it has a lot of impact on our text this morning. First Peter, of course, was written by the Apostle Peter, to believers who were scattered around in various communities and who compromised part of the early church. As is clear from the entirety of the book, of the entire letter and church history, the believers to whom he was writing were facing a very hard time. They were suffering for their faith. They were a persecuted group. They had challenges in just about every area of life, and many of them were enduring very real hardship. They had challenges in their own personal walk with the Lord. They had challenges in their relationships, even in their marriages. They had challenges in relation to the government that was over them. They had challenges in relation to those that they served. Their lives were very challenging. They were often treated poorly by others because of Christ. They were accused of things because of Christ. Their lives were hard. And 1 Peter was written to encourage these believers to keep going. It was written to remind them of who they were in Christ, to remind them of the privileges they had despite what their lives looked like. And it was written to encourage them to live holy lives. Even in the midst of all they were enduring, the commands of God were still the same. They needed to live consistent with their faith. And so Peter knew their lives were hard, but he also knew that God cared about them and God still expected things from them. And so he wanted them 
to have the full lives in Christ that God intended for them. In fact, he didn't want them just to wallow in self-pity and say, oh, our lives are hard and we feel so bad. He wanted them to live victorious lives. He wanted them to live joyful lives. Lives that truly were pleasing to the Lord. So to do that, his letter is very orderly, but it's also filled with practical exhortation and theology. And as the book began and Peter introduces themselves, he reminds them of the theology of their life, that they were chosen by God. He's praising God for that, but he's also in the praise even teaching theology. They're enduring real hardships. Their lives are tough. That's not an illusion. But these are the things that God planned before the foundation of the world. They're his chosen people. And God is going to make things a reality in their lives. God has planned out everything. God is in control still in spite of the hardships. And he wants them to think rightly about life in the here and now. And part of thinking rightly about life in here and now is keeping an eye on where life ultimately will be, which is in heaven with the Lord. When we're together with Christ, everything will be different. But until then, God is working in our lives, in part by allowing us to endure hardships and struggles. And it shows the genuineness of our faith. In fact, all of the challenges of life are really a testing ground, a proving ground for our faith. In fact, everything about our salvation is considered to be just a stupendous blessing. Even though we're in hardship, we have privileges as believers. They had privileges, the original hearers, we still have those privileges. In fact, our privileges are so great that our salvation, everything about the gifts that we have, were such that Old Testament writers were just looking forward wondering. They didn't understand the fullness of things. In fact, things are so great that even angels marvel and would love to understand fully what privileges we have as believers. So even though life looked bad, Peter's reminding them things aren't really bad for you if you know Christ. You are privileged, you are blessed. Because the God of the universe sent his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us. And then when we get into, this is probably the first 12 verses, what I'd roughly summarized. But in verse 13, he begins to make the call for action that's going to be indicative of the rest of the letter. And he's talking to them about the necessity of thinking rightly. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's preparing them for where he's taking them. And even then, he begins to tell them, you need to live holy lives. You be holy like God is holy. Quoting from Leviticus. Ultimately, he gives this little discourse on some of the aspects of holiness, and then he begins to talk a little bit more about our responsibilities to each other. Verses 22 to 25 of chapter 1, really he's talking about the fervent love we're supposed to have in the body of Christ. And then, as he gets into chapter 2, he highlights the centrality of the Word of God in believers' lives. 
The Word of God is where we draw our strength. We're supposed to long for the pure milk of the Word because that's central to equipping us to deal with life. He alludes to the fact, even in verse 1, to put aside all malice and deceit. All these types of sins that would impact the body of Christ, that would affect how we react with each other, certainly would apply outside of us, but it's all tied into how we're supposed to be different. And then in verses 4 through 10, he kind of gives a theological discourse, just talking about us and our status and Christ's status as the cornerstone and us even with all of our imperfections being created by God for a certain place in His kingdom, we're living stones to be a part of what He's building. And then verses 9 and 10, those are the last verses I covered when I taught back in May. He says, But you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And he's really encouraging them by those words. We have a unique place in all of humanity. He's borrowing Old Testament language that was originally applied to Israel, but he's not saying that Israel is no more. What he's saying is that we have a unique place as the chosen of God under the new covenant. God specifically selected us to be his people. There's an aspect where we are royalty. We're a part of the king's entourage, so to speak. And ultimately, we're supposed to be proclaiming as believers the excellencies of the God who saved us. The God who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he's really reminding us that there was a time where we weren't the people of God. There was a time when we had not received mercy. There was a time when we truly were in darkness, every believer. And yet God chose us out of that, called us into his kingdom, made us a part of his family, such that we have a privileged, privileged place. Now that's a quick, quick overview of many, many weeks of teaching. But it's just sort of a reminder as we come to what I would say is a transitional part of the book of First Peter. Because as we get into verses 11 and 12 this morning, really this is the bridge to the rest of the book. We're about to get into the parts of First Peter that are the reason why I wanted to teach First Peter. We're about to get into a lot of practical exhortations about how we live in relation to our government, about how we live in relation to our employers, about how we live in relation to our spouses. How do we live in relation to our churches? How do we live in relation to our church leaders? How do our church leaders relate to our people? I am looking forward to all that instruction, but we're at a bridge now. Because verses 11 and 12, depending on how you would look at it, I've read some compelling arguments that would say, in essence, this is sort of, verses 11 is looking back and summarizing what's already happened, and verse 12 is looking forward to what's to come, and everything that follows is a fleshing out of these verses. I would not say, like I have in other verses, that necessarily these two verses absolutely express the theme of the book. 
But I do think these two verses that we're going to cover today and next week provide the central focus for the practical outcomes of the book. In other words, if you were to have asked Peter, and I'm not going to get into some mystical thing, but if you asked him, what would you want to see out of the hearers after they read your letter, it would be what comes out of verses 11 and 12. In fact, I've thought about this a lot. I've thought about it in relation to my own life. I've thought about it in relation to your lives. If we did what is contained in verses 11 and 12 we would hear, well done, good and faithful servants. Because this really summarizes our life as believers. This summarizes sanctification. Because what you're going to see is there's an internal component of this direction and there's an external component. So, for our discussion of this, it's going to be a simple two-part outline. It's not very catchy. If I was writing a book, I'd spend more time trying to come up with something that sounds a little bit more compelling. But this is really two steps for living a life pleasing to God. Two steps for leaving, living a life pleasing to God. I'm going to read the verses and I'll get into this. So follow along with me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved... I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation." It was very hard for me to stick with my teaching today because the second part in verse 12 has really captivated my mind in light of a lot of what's going on in our society. But what I realize is that stepping to verse 12 without dealing with verse 11 is not possible. So here's the first step for living a life pleasing to God. Resist the fleshly lust of your heart. Resist the fleshly lusts of your heart. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. A couple of things jump out before you get to the abstain word. First, as with many New Testament writers, Peter makes it clear that he's writing from a position of love. The word beloved, not every version translates it that way, but that's the best understanding in our English of it. It really conveys endearment and affection. He cares deeply about the brothers and sisters in Christ to which he is writing. He is not acting as a dictator, spouting off directions to the peasants to get in line and march the right way. He truly loves the church. He truly loves the people that are getting this letter. I think his love is seen even in how on such a central issue of the Christian walk, he deals with them. He says, Beloved, I urge you. I got to tell you, when I originally read this, I missed 
something here. I assume this was a straight command and this was just some kind of English softening of it. And I do believe the ultimate issue is something that we're mandated to do. But Peter is not phrasing it as a command. He's certainly capable of giving commands. He's used imperative language already in his letter where he said you must do. And he's going to give a lot of imperative commands coming up. But in this context, it's almost as though he's stopping and having a one-on-one conversation with each of us. Saying, look, this is what I want for you. You need this. Now, it's a strong urging. It's a strong appeal. But I think it's an appeal out of love. The New King James phrases it, I beg you. And I see that not in some foolish sense, but in a true pleading of saying, this is what you need. As much as I can possibly exhort you, plead with you, please do this. Again, he's an apostle. He could bark orders. He's somebody that had the authority to just say, do it because I said do it. But I think here, he's taking a moment and just approaching them from such a loving way that he's given them the opportunity to live out the reality of who they already are. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. These terms have different nuances of meaning, but combined, they're really a synonymous description. For Christians, then... This world was not their home. And I have to say over and over, that means the same thing now. For Christians, this isn't our home. An alien is someone who is living in a foreign country. In law school, I took a course on immigration law. Alien has become a pejorative in our political discourse, but it was just an accurate description of somebody that wasn't from the U.S., that somebody who came here from somebody somewhere else. And a stranger is someone who's living alongside other people, but he's not one of those people. And that really is an apt description of what happens when we moved from darkness into light. Because the scripture makes it clear, even though God is sovereign, this world is still operating in darkness. Satan has a veil over the eyes of unbelievers and darkness surrounds us and all of a sudden we're in the light. We're aliens. We're strangers. It's always been the case with God's people. Since sin entered the world, God's true people have been alien and strangers in sinful cultures. It's interesting, I think the Jewishness of Peter's writing, many people comment on this. This is the type of language that Abraham used to describe himself, literally. At one point when he was going to find a burial place, he said, I'm a stranger and a sojourner among you. It's a similar language which basically means this isn't where I'm from. And that's the reality of who we are. When God made us his chosen race, a people for his own possession, the people of God, out of darkness into light, we got a new passport, so to speak. 
we stepped into a new realm. Now, we understand physically we're still here. I was an American by birth based on our constitutional system, and when I was saved, I didn't lose my American citizenship. And yet, the reality is, if you're a believer, even America is not really your home. This really is the summation of what's stated elsewhere in Scripture, Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really Peter's point. So he's making it clear, I love you, I'm pleading with you, and the basis of my pleading with you, of begging you, of urging you as strongly as I can that you need to do this is the fact that you're not a part of this world. Which, what he's about to say is an indication which means you can't live like you're part of this world. Now let's look again at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. Now again, when I was originally reading this in English, it didn't jump out at me what significance is here. But this really is talking about what goes on on the inside of you. Verse 12 is going to tell us about our external living, the implications. But really, verse 11 is dealing more with what's going on inside your heart. The idea is simple, but it's more comprehensive than perhaps might first jump out. Abstain means what you think it means. It means to keep away from. It means to avoid. And the way it's used grammatically, it's structured in such a way that this is an ongoing duty. This is something that is supposed to always be the case. If you're alive today and you live another 20 years, you're supposed to abstain from today till the end of those 20 years. And if you live 50 years, you're supposed to abstain for the 50 years. This is a duty for all of us at all times if we know Christ. And it's something very specific. He's talking about fleshly lusts. And this is the part that's more expansive than perhaps we might initially think. Because I think for many of us, by the nature of things, when we see the word lust, we think of sexual sin. You say lust, you think of sin. And that's not completely irrational, scripturally. For example, Jesus said in Matthew 5.28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I think for some of us, when we see lust, we immediately think that. But the word translated lust is not inherently related to sex. It's not. It just has to do with strong desires. Inordinate desires. Really passionate longings of the heart. In fact, this word that's translated in English, lust, at times in Scripture is neutral. It's not necessarily a bad thing. There are some desires that aren't bad desires. For example, in 1 Peter 1.12, where it talks about things into which angels long 
to look, that word long is the same word that's translated lust here. It's the same root, at least. So there's nothing wrong with the angel's desire. That's not a sinful desire. So this word lust in and of itself can be neutral. It just means a strong desire. What makes it clearly dealing with sin is that word fleshly which is attached to it. But even that doesn't make this all about sexual sin, although it certainly would include that. Fleshly lusts, by the use of that word fleshly, are distorted desires. I think the simplest way to show this is to ask you to turn to Galatians 5. In Galatians 5, Peter is writing and he gives a listing of deeds of the flesh, which I think really are explanatory of the types of desires that have been corrupted that Peter is talking about. So in Galatians 5, I'll just start reading at verse 19, but he says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. So in other words, what he's about to describe are things associated with the flesh. And I think... It's perfectly appropriate when you see Peter say fleshly lust to sort of fill in this laundry list at that point and say this is what Peter's talking about. Anything that fits in this category is what Peter's talking about. What did Paul say was related to the flesh? Now the deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. Certainly all of that could be related to sexual sin. Idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and because he wants to make sure that nothing's left out and things like these. In case there's a lawyer in the group who parses the list. So when we look at what Peter is urging with a lot of love and exhorting, he's saying, look, alien and stranger, which is what each one of us is, stay away from, run from these fleshly desires. These desires don't magically go away when we're saved. There's a theological Theologically significant truth here. I don't have it in my notes. I don't know why I didn't write it down because when I just thought of it, I'm like, I should have said this. So I'm going to say it. But when you become a believer, you understand you're still in this flesh and blood body. Here is the difference. As an unbeliever, you're enslaved to those fleshly lusts. They control you. You can't get away from them. As a believer, you fight against them and you can prevail over them because you've been given a new heart. But Peter makes it clear what's really going on. We're to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. And now when I first read that language, which wage war against the soul, two thoughts jumped into my mind. The first is that this is true. Because this is my life. The second is that imagery is even more disturbing than it jumped out at me. Again, it describes 
I think for every one of us, what has happened since you've been saved? You want to follow the Lord, and yet you're tripping over your own feet over and over and over again. You want to live victoriously. You want to be a great example, and yet you keep stumbling and falling. It's because of the war that's going on in your heart. I tell you, I feel this battle every day. Went to a funeral when I was in seminary of the man who really was the catalyst for me leaving the legal profession and going to seminary. The Lord put the desire in my heart, but I approached one man who was godly, and he wasn't a pastor, but he is the one who helped me navigate things. He and his wife met with Debbie and I over a couple of years. And at his funeral, I'll never forget, we had to go up to Fresno where we had lived before I went to seminary. And at the funeral, John MacArthur had come up to speak at the funeral, and I remember what stood out to me. I'd like to get a copy of it. What stood out to me was... The basic gist of what jumped in my heart was that that war's over when you go to heaven. And I thought, I can't wait. I think that was the first time that I would have gotten on a bus outside the church. Because that war is draining. And it's hard. A commentator that I love, I'm going to quote from him, he said, those lusts, constitute an army of soldiers engaged in constant warfare against the soul aimed at capturing the believer and making him useless to God. That's what makes the imagery so disturbing. You think about it and it's true. There's an evil army within us fighting us every day. As though we don't have enough to deal with with all of the external issues There's an internal warfare going on constantly. There are times, and it's sinful that I don't have more patience with people at times, but there are times when I see people talking about their battle with sin and I realize theologically they're missing it completely. Because they think everything that they're dealing with, it's somebody else's fault. Well, Satan was attacking me, this person did this, it was out there. Does the world tempt us? Of course. Is Satan trying to destroy us? Of course he is. Is he putting baited hooks all around us so that we'll grab and get snatched away? Of course, he's trying all those things. But at the end of the day, our failures aren't because of those things. Rather, those external things, the baited hooks, play off of our failure to abstain from the fleshly lusts that are already here. James said it this way in James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. In the context, it was people saying, look, God, you created these circumstances. This is all your fault. Man, I'd be walking victoriously, but look what you did. Look what kind of life you gave me. Look what circumstances I have to fight through. God, I'd be victorious, but for you. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Meaning God doesn't give anyone evil desires in their heart. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it gives birth to death. It's painting a distorted gestation period for sin starts with a little seed of a desire that is perverted and then it grows and grows into action and that action wreaks devastation in the life. 
That's the battle that Peter's describing in verse 11. And I want to be very careful. If you can relate to this, if you can say to yourself, yeah, I feel that battle. I don't want you to let the existence of the battle in your life discourage you and put you in a wrong place. Because the greatest of saints have the exact same struggle. Many times I go back to Romans 7. In fact, go ahead and turn to Romans 7. I'm going to start reading at verse 14. Because Paul is addressing this battle. I think Paul is addressing the struggle against the flesh. I don't think he's doing it. I know he's doing it. Beginning at verse 14 of Romans 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil thing that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind, I'm serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Here's the ultimate point. That's the struggle of a believer. Paul uses some confusing language, but the overarching picture he paints, I think rings true with every believer. We find ourselves at times having walked into a sinful activity or a sinful thought for a sinful practice and we go, what in the world am I doing? I don't want to be here. Except I'm here. Let me assure you that this battle, though, is winnable. Peter would not urge his hearers to do something that they were not capable of doing. 1 Corinthians 10.13 was one of the first verses I ever memorized when I was a new believer. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man as God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you will be able to endure it. There's never a time where a believer can say, I didn't have a choice. It wasn't me. It wasn't my fault. We are not slaves to our flesh in the same way anymore. Romans 6, 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So we are fighting daily a battle. So how do we abstain? The Bible says that you don't make any provision for the flesh Every one of us struggles in different ways. 
when I look in the mirror, I see certain struggles. When you look in the mirror, you probably see different struggles. Sometimes our struggles overlap, but those fleshly activities in Galatians 5 were comprehensive. Covered every area of life. So what do you struggle with? Nip it in the bud. Barney Fife Theology from the Andy Griffith Show. (laughs) Nip it. Here's the point though. Don't allow yourself to keep feeding those lusts. So for example, if it's something that you're seeing, don't look at it. Don't watch certain TV programs. Don't watch certain movies. Don't read certain books. If it's something you're hearing, don't put that station on anymore. Don't listen to that music. If it has to do with your lack of patience or something like that, well then you need to prepare yourself before you step into the same environment, be it a work environment or a school environment. The point is we need to be very purposeful and very honest with ourselves. Don't fool yourselves. If you know that every time you walk down this road, you stumble into sin, guess what I'm going to tell you? Don't walk down that road. But that's the battle of the heart. It's not a matter of the steps, it's a matter of the heart. You see that road for what it is before you ever set foot that way. You start transforming your mind with Scripture so that you can put to death those fleshly lusts. What makes us challenge? Because we still live in the world. 1 John 2, 15 and 17 really summarizes, I think, a lot of what our struggle becomes. Do not love the world nor the things of in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, what you're feeling, the lust of the eyes, what you're seeing, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. You've got to put up your guards. It's amazing to me the changes that have occurred in our exposure to information just in the last 15 or 20 years. Let's go 20 years ago and I would have said, be careful about cable TV. Now, nobody sees TV, it's the internet. But the internet's changed because now it's not even a situation of what you're going to look for, it comes to you. You get random emails. You've got ads popping up all over websites. If you're on social media, which I don't happen to be, but I know people are sending you links. People are sharing stuff. People are exposing you stuff. Let me get real practical. You've got to know yourself. That was a time years ago when I canceled the Sunday newspaper. Why? Because I was infatuated with power tools. And every Sunday I got a new ad with more stuff. That sounds silly, but what was happening? The lust of the eyes. And I realized all it was doing was making me discontented because I wanted to do something. I wanted to better something. And I realized in my own heart, that's going to lead me into trouble. That's a silly example. Perhaps a more personal example. There was a time when I asked Debbie, you know, please don't get that catalog anymore. Particular catalog because it would cause me to stumble. And there are certain things that we don't do Because I know how easily my heart is inflamed with wrong desires. 
be honest with yourself. I would encourage you, don't spend time trying to figure out what I was talking about. Look in the mirror. I've got my battles to fight. You've got your battles to fight. The way to fight them is the same. We've got to get away from, we've got to stay away from those remnants of our flesh that pull us away from godliness. This is critical. I'm looking forward to next week. I have a lot to say for next week. I'm looking forward to it, but next week is pointless if you don't listen this week. It's the same for me. Because when we're told in verse 12... To keep our behavior excellent, that's not possible if we've not abstained from fleshly lust. Because the fleshly lust will dictate the behavior. So let me encourage you. Be honest with yourself this week. Ask God to show you what you need to do to abstain from the desires that are wrong in your heart. Could be that you're too easily angered such that you have strife and enmity. It could be that you're too easily jealous because you look at everybody else's world and they look better than yours. It could be that you're tempted to wear morality. It could be any number of things. Be honest with yourself. It's not an exercise of condemnation. It's just an honest assessment that says, Lord, there's a foreign army fighting me and I want to win. Show me where the battle is. Please join me as I close this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the practical instruction that Peter's giving us. I thank you for the loving, tender heart that he expressed to his original listeners. And Lord, it's the same loving, tender heart you have for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us think rightly about where we are. Help us to always remember this world isn't our home. And that when this world bombards us with messages that says you need this, you need to think this way, you need to be this way, that we can resist it because we're just foreigners here. And Lord, I thank you for saving us. I thank you for giving us a new heart. But Lord, each one of us still fights the battle against the residual flesh. Pray you would help us. Pray that you would help me. Lord, it's a daily battle. The war never stops. There's no armistice. There's no break. If we stop fighting, we start losing. So I pray that you give us the strength and the courage and the desire to fight. Lord, help us never wave the white flag when it comes to our fleshly lust. But help us by your strength and enablement to abstain from those things that pull us away from you. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.